Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. A happy new year. It's that time of the year when our dates blur and you don't know if it's Tuesday or Thursday or Saturday. That time in the year in which you reset your mind and you make plans for the 2023 season. This week, we are in between Christmas and our New Year series. It's the Bridge Week. And I love bridge weeks because they are these moments when we can both reflect and be expectant. We have left the old and we can see the other side, the new trail. The reflective and the expectant is the place where I also love to live my faith. We have left the old and we can see the other side, the new trail. The reflective and expectant is the place where I also love to live my faith, reflecting on all the great things God has done while also resting in the promises and covenants of God. So this is where we get to live today. If you've been around for Christmas and the Christmas series, you know that we've talked about worship. We discussed our posture of worship, the mood we bring into worship, the action in our worship life. And next week, Not only are we back to in-person meetings, but we're also starting a new series in which Matt is going to be exploring the theme of resilience in the book of Daniel. As we walk this bridge, we get to explore how our lives of worship, our experiences and existence of worship are in many ways rooted in resilience. We're diving into the story of Noah, pun intended, to see the way in which worship and resilience intertwine in a beautiful way. As always, let's pray as we jump into the Word of God. Lord, we just thank you for this new year, for the new seasons of promise and hope and joy. And Lord, as we spend this little bit of time in your Word, we just ask that we would hear from you. Lord, that you would speak into our hearts and into our minds so that we can begin this new year fresh with you. We can begin this new year surrounded by you. And we can just hear from you, Lord, as we start uh, our 2023. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. A handful of years ago, my family came overseas to explore our ancestral areas of Scotland. And naturally, part of their pilgrimage was this journey to St. Andrews because my family are big golf nerds. We played a few holes. I scored three hole-in-ones on their mini golf course. And we ate some very mushy peas with our fish and chips, or halloumi and chips, if you're vegetarian. We ended the day on a famous beach right off of the golf course, the beach where they filmed the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Now, I must admit, I've uh, never actually seen the entire movie, but I have, of course, seen the opening scene, the iconic, iconic beach running scene. A handful of young lads clad in white shirts and white shorts and their shoeless running across a a smooth slab of sand. Uh, The sky is cloudy, the water is choppy, and as the music swells with cinematic gusto, the guys run and run and run. As the sea pans, you see the city pop up, the red-bricked building, that corner of St. Andrew's Golf Course in the background. 
The scene is incredible, it's inspirational, it's this mixture of sports, power, and incredible musical score. It makes the men look and feel invincible. And you believe that you can be just like them. And so when in Scotland, we put on our running shoes and shorts, ready to tackle the beach run, and well, we ran. And we ran, and we ran, and we ran, and we were being soaked by the waves. As this waves came over and it took the breath out of us, the, the, the cold Scottish air is whipping your face, and the beach is uneven, and your ankles begin to hurt, and well, you're miserable. We get these iconic films and images and they draw us in to make us believe that we could do anything and then we find our limitation. The same happens not just in inspirational stories, but for any story. We believe in an archetype of love that fits the Disney princess stories. We believe in heroes like the Avengers or the Rebels in Star Wars. We know that villains like Jafar and Darth Maul are to be avoided and that sidekicks like Bilbo Baggins make a journey better. Fables, stories, poems, epic tales uh, are how we make sense of life and learn about peoples and cultures. Sociologists will tell you that there are seven characters in each archetypal story and 11 or 12 storylines that we all follow. But the science doesn't matter, right? The stories do. Over the past few years, Hollywood has detailed one of these stories into films, The Story of Noah. We see the humorous movie Evan Almighty with Steve Carell and depict this humorous narrative of Noah. And of course, who could forget Russell Crowe's Noah with those stone-throwing monsters? Those films entertain us, but they don't reveal the truth of the story of Noah, the way in which Noah intertwined this life of worship into a life of being uh, active and being resilient. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. We're going to be reflecting on some of the truths and hintings that we get from the real story of Noah. We find the story of Noah early in our Bible. The Old Testament, the first groupings of books in the Bible, reveals the stories about God. And the Old Testament starts with five books that we call the Pentateuch. And these stories are stories of creation and history. And in Genesis 6, we find this story of Noah. Let's read. The story of Noah starts with an observation from God. In Genesis 6, 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that, ev and that every intention of the thoughts of, the, of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and grieved, it grieved him to his heart. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Like any good ethnographer, God observes a problem and then he creates a set of actions to mend what was observed. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, or the earth is filled with the violence through men. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And now the action of God is followed by an action of man. So God tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, 
of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you and to keep them alive. Also take, every, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. And then in Genesis 7, we read that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his son and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all of mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was a breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And then in Genesis 8, we read, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And then Noah and his family walked onto dry land and they planted and gleaned the land and they were fruitful and they multiplied. Noah's story is a story of worship and obedience and resilience. We've talked a lot about uh, a few of the forms of worship these past few weeks. And today we're looking at how worship, obedience, and resilience intertwine. Now let's be real, obedience is not an easy or a fun thing when we talk about it or when we think about it. We are wired to be disobedient. We are programmed to squirm and feel a little uncomfortable when we talk about obedience. This is never more evident than when I'm working in a library in kids' ministry. My kids are great and hilarious, but if you've spent any time with kids, you know that disobedience is their one and only mode. A few weeks ago, Jordan, for our kids director, planned a fun candy scavenger hunt for our kids. It was very simple. The kids all had to sit in the middle of the room, and when you yelled go, they would go and find one candy cane during the scavenger hunt. The instructions were very clear. Go and find one of the candy canes, and only one. But we were overseeing young kids, so they're all under the age of 10. And you know that kids have a hard time listening to instructions in general. But when you throw sugar into the mix, well, it's all over. We yelled, go. The kids went crazy. And I'm pretty sure none of them grabbed only one candy cane. I know this because we saw some of the kids grab handfuls. Some had four or five. Some didn't have any. And as we tried to redistribute so that each kid went home with a candy cane, some kids lied to my face as they held multiple candy canes and they said they only had one. Little liars and thieves. Kids are inherently disobedient. They're liars and cheaters and slobs, but they're cute, so they get away with it. And as we get older, we still hold within us this innate sense of disobedience. We just get better at hiding it or manipulating around it. We tend to be disobedient. Have you ever unbuckled your seatbelt when the pilot has clearly left a seatbelt sign on? Disobedient. Have you ever used your camera during a show when you were told not to? Disobedient. Have you ever ran on a pool deck? Disobedient. We're all little rebels and sometimes it's funny. But we know that at times our disobedience leaves us wounded, leaves us distant, and leaves us with a longing. 
some of us find disobedience or the topic of disobedience more difficult to think about, to respond to, and I understand that. But today we're linking obedience and worship, even in the midst of the challenge that that, that, that presents. Now, let's be clear, theologians and pastors have spent years and years parsing out this idea of obedience and worship, of responding to God in action and acceptance. There's a depth of wisdom and a ton of nuance that comes with this conversation, so a simple three-minute discussion doesn't do the full topic justice. So for now, just simple worship and obedience. And we see this idea demonstrated throughout the Bible, this idea that part of our worship intertwines with our obedience to God. And the great news is that throughout the Bible, we see people screwing up the obedience and worship bit. We see the Israelites countless times disobeying God, even when God literally rested in their community. Or we see Jonah and David, Peter and Thomas all fumbling with this understanding of what obedience looks like and how obedience and worship intertwine. We see fumbles because we know the difficulty of it. And yet God in the Old Testament and then Jesus in the New Testament calls us to a life that intersects obedience with worship. In the Gospel of John, we see this so clearly. Uh, Jesus is stating in John 14 this truth. Jesus reveals the truth of who he is and how he, uh, who he is influences believers. The chapter starts with Jesus telling his followers about him. And then he says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. The God who is in the flesh the God who is preparing a sacred place, the God who invites connection and relational attachments. This is the God who we find in this chapter in John. After Jesus gives this oration of who he is and how he and how believers are, are able to interact, he goes on to talk about, albeit briefly, this idea of worship and obedience. Before Jesus talks about and promises the Holy Spirit, he says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, but does so by underlining this idea of, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or in layman's terms, if you love me, you will follow me, you will obey. You will obey my commandments, my promptings, what the Spirit leads you to, and your obedience will be a form of worship because you will know that what you are called to, what you are drawn to, what I have placed in your gut is from God. And at times it may be difficult to shift your focus, to realign your feet, to give up or surrender, and at times it will be joyful and obvious. But no matter what circumstance or emotion you will fall into, the depths of grace and joy and love as we obey. From our, uh, from our obedience will spring forth understanding and peace and grace, and in the flow of obedience, we will naturally spring into worship. That's what Jesus tells us here in John 14. And listen, it's a challenging, and it makes us reflect on the characteristics of God and the characteristics of free will, and obedience and, and, and worship brings up big questions, but in its simplicity, we find that our obedience and our life of worship are linked together. 
which makes the story of Noah one that helps us understand how worship and resilience can at times collide. Okay, so back to Noah. Noah is this story of tension, of obedience and resilience, of an imperfect man making it through this perilous journey and obeying and worshiping, but also living in the chaos that comes with life. We meet Noah in the beginning of Genesis, and he is, in this story, the foil character. The rest of the people around him are described as wicked, and so, so wicked that Genesis says that God regretted that he made man. I mean, have you ever been disappointed? I've been disappointed in a lot of things, but I don't think I regret making those things. That God regretted making man. And so God planned to blot out all of humanity except for Noah. Noah is given a commandment to go and to make an ark. He got the specific measurements and the roof design. Noah was told to fill the ark with, uh, and he was told what type of food to put in the ark, all these instructions. And then in Genesis 6, it ends like this. It says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. In popular culture and in our Sunday school classes, we often have this idea that Noah was made fun of or that his community rejected him. And, well, that may have been very true, but Genesis 6 and 7 say very little about Noah's reaction or the reaction of his family. We read that Noah had this commandment from God and that he followed it. He did all that he was commanded for. And in chapter 7, Noah once again follows what God tells him and enters into the ark. And once he's in the ark, he and his family live and they exist for days of rain and weather. Genesis 7 says that all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock and bees, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They are blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah. God remembers Noah and the waters dry up. And then Genesis continues with Noah and his family integrating back into normal life routines. This story of Noah is a story of worship, of resilience. And we're going to reflect on these sort of three stages, these three forms of worship and obedience and resilience to understand how the story of Noah can be a story for us and for our walk with God. So the first truth or or area of reflection that I think we gain from the Noah story is this. In our lives, we will be faced with a moment in which we are called to nonsensical obedience. Here's what I mean by that. We are in our faith journeys when we may be called to something or someone or somewhere, and that calling or that focus of the calling won't make any sense. And it takes worship and obedience to accept and listen to that call. Noah's calling made no sense. Genesis starts with God creating and the God creating man in God's image. We have this planting and nurturing, this life-breathing God, and that's the God that we know. For five chapters, God has given life and given second chances. God has exhibited creativity and relational connectedness. God has also exhibited judgment and punishment, and that changed the life of Adam and Eve and their children. But God hasn't demolished. God hasn't willed God's power and destruction, just creation. And then we meet a God who destroys in the story of Noah. 
we meet a new characteristic, a new side of God that we later see throughout the Old Testament. But if we were living in this time, we may not think of God as a destroyer, just as a God of second chances. So Noah's calling was unusual because it displayed this new or unusual side of God that individuals may not have assumed they would see. Noah's calling was also odd or nonsensical because he was called to do something that was strange. We aren't told what Noah's occupation was before this. I guess it doesn't really matter, except for the fact that Noah was told to build an enormous ship. And then he was told to be a zookeeper and an arbologist. And then later, after the ark, he was told to be a gardener and a planter. Now, we all have lots of skills, but I don't think I could think of anyone who could realistically be both a shipbuilder and a vet and a farmer. Seems like a large uh, swath of skills to have. Noah may have already been a boat builder. He most likely was in some form a, a farmer or interacted with animals. But in these chapters, Noah was called to build and build something extraordinary. And then he was called to watch and keep and protect. And alongside his family, Noah did all of this. His obedience to the call meant that he had to step out of his prescribed role in order to build and to gather and to farm. His calling was crazy because it required him to do things that may not have been in his skill set. And then the obvious, right? Noah's calling was crazy because the physical thing he was called to build was insane and massive and perhaps not obviously functional pre-flood. And yet despite all of this, despite all the weirdness or craziness of Noah's calling, he obeyed. His obedience was a form of worship because I would argue it displayed this form of trust, this lack of questioning, a lack of complaint about the hardship. Noah just did. Now, sometimes our complaints, our questions, our laments towards God are, are needed. So I'm not saying we just accept and robotically take on what God is calling us to do this year. What I'm saying is that at some point this year, I imagine God is going to prompt you to do something that makes no sense. You'll be called to formation in a nonsensical way. And when that happens, maybe lean in with obedience and with excitement to see what God can do when God places something weird or strange or big on our hearts. Noah replied with obedience, and that obedience as worship led him on a wild journey that he could never have expected. Which leads us to the second area of reflection for this story of Noah. Now, I must admit that this second area of reflection actually popped into my brain weeks and weeks ago. I was on Twitter, as any good millennial is, and I saw a tweet from a scholar who was discussing the ark that Noah built. He was talking about how this ark was not merely a ship, but rather the Hebrew word used to describe this boat reveals something deeper, more meaningful, something that helps us balance obedience and worship and resilience. The Hebrew word used in this story of the ark is a special word, the word tevah. And it's only used twice in the Old Testament. The word ark is used here in this story of Noah. And then it's used later in Exodus chapter 2 when Moses, as a baby, is placed in an ark. Exodus 2 tells us, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife as a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was, fi was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with but butchman and, bit and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now the word basket here is perhaps better defined to be the word ark. 
the ark in these verses is the vessel for salvation, a means of escape that God has designed. And while God knows the final resting place of both of the vessels, these all arks are also rudderless. By that, I mean that these vessels aren't sailable like modern boats. So God called Noah to craft this giant ship, but ultimately this ship was uh, at the whim of the rain and the waves. It wasn't steered to dry land, it ran into it. And both in Genesis and Exodus, a person is sent to journey in a watercraft, the salvation of a people dependent on their survival, and yet neither of them could force an outcome. The scholar whose tweet I saw concluded with the idea that the teva, both the ark and the basket, remind us that no matter what our strengths or success produces, that ultimately it's God who steers our journey. And some may find that sad or pessimistic. Some may struggle under the weight of that thought. But to me, it reminds me that God has a plan for bigger and better than I can imagine. And so part of the journey of obedience is trusting God's calling and trusting God's outcome. Theologian Cindy Lee talks about this in her book, Our Unforming. In this book, she reflects on ways to de-Westernize our faith and our spiritual formation. And one of the topics that she discusses is time. Here's what she says. We plan as a way to calm our anxieties and to give us a sense of control over our busy lives. When we try to control time, time ends up controlling us. Our busy schedules take over our lives. This relationship with the linear time forms us to be impatient, in a hurry, and constantly productive. This anxiety-ridden relationship with time has carried over into our spiritual lives. We tend to impatiently wait on God's response to us based on our understanding of days, months, and years. We balk at the seemingly slow work of God. God seems to have a very different understanding of time. The understanding of the ark and the basket being rudderless reminds me of a similar idea that Cindy talks about, this idea that a life of faith, a life of worship, is in some ways a life that responds to a God who is not fixed by our structure, our time, our need, to steer the ship. It can be both freeing and infuriating to recognize that while God works in our lives directly, that sometimes this work is boundless in a way that can leave us yearning for assurance, can lead us uh, yearning for control. The tension we feel as people of time when living with an unbound God is just that. And that's part of the story of Noah and part of the story of us. The story of Noah reminds me to respond to God's promptings with obedience. And then it also reminds me that responding with obedience is merely the first step in a, in a worshipful and a worship-filled life. Because the second understanding and truth tells me that e- even once I respond with obedience, that things will come, things may not go my way, but that the ability to respond to the waves and the rain without holding to the steering wheel is a form of obedient worship. Do you have a story of resilience? You know, there's a popular story, a sort of folklore tale about resistance that we often tell our kids. You know, the story starts like this. You know, we're introduced to a father who loves his spouse and his child more than anything else in the world. And he works to protect his family, you know, to keep them fed. Uh, but through tragic events in his, in his life, his wife passes. And his son begins to grow. And even though his son is young, it's time to enter school. And the, the father's burdened by loss and fear. And he tries to hold on to his son. But his son eventually finds a school and a group of friends, and his son grows in that community. 
And as the son grows into his own into his own self, the father struggles, right? He tries to hold on tightly to his baby. And, and so naturally the son rebels. The son rebels so much that the son eventually missteps and is transported on a wild adventure that draws him away from his dad. And his father, longing to be reunited with his son, engages in his own journey. You know, he's traveling and pushing, pushing him outside of, the, of his safety boundary. The son and his father, eventually they come back together and all is right in the world in their celebration. You know, and the story may sound like the, the tale of the prodigal son, right? But it's actually the story we watch in Finding Nemo. Marlon and Nemo in the film engage in this tension and battle to remain together while, while also growing as individuals. And along the way, we learn to just keep swimming from Dory, just to move forward while we pursue and search for this, for this thing that we love. It's actually a common narrative in Disney films and Finding Nemo and Toy Story and Frozen and so many other stories are these stories of pursuit, of moving forward despite the odds, of finding a core identity in the struggles of our journey. And in some way, this is the story of Noah as well. And Kylie's opening this idea of how worship and resilience connect. So here's your reminder in this pause to just keep swimming. If life feels more worshipful, or if you're in a season of more resilience, just keep swimming. Just keep leaning into God. Just keep pursuing God. Just keep going. Now let's rejoin Kylie as she shares more about the connection between resilience and worship. And so this is when and where resilience comes in. Matt is going to be spending the next few weeks in the book of Daniel discovering and discussing the idea of resilience. So for now, the truth is that in the story of Moses and in Noah, we see this intertwining of obedience and worship. And yet we know and we see that even when we're obedient, even when our worship excels, it doesn't mean that the timeline will be instant. Noah and his family engaged in obedient worship, and yet they still sat in an ark for 150 days. They sat even in the midst of this sacred space they built and lived in, and they sat and they waited for the rain to end, for the waves to calm, for the dry land to emerge. And this resilience, waiting, it involved hope and patience. It involves trust and faith and obedience. So as you're writing those New Year resolutions, as we're starting to prepare for whatever 2023 brings, remember these truths. But no matter where we find ourselves today, if we're angry with God or happy with God, if you're in a year of plenty or in a year of want, remember that God loves you. And remember that God has placed on your life a purpose and a plan, even if that purpose or plan looks a little silly. Remember that even as you embark on your journey with God, that your journey may throw you into waves and storms, but it also brings rainbows. Remember that control doesn't mean success. That just because the ark and the basket were rudderless, it didn't mean that they were directionless. Remember that God used Noah and Moses to save nations. And remember that we can also take a posture of worship, even when that worship is full of questions and lament. Remember that God presides over a people who are resilient. I hope these truths and one of those truths speaks to you today. And that God uses one of these truths to fill this beginning of the year with his presence and his grace and his love for you in your walk. I'm so excited to see you in person and online or online next week as we think about and experience what it means to be a people. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. 
Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.